Good morning. Please open your Bibles to Matthew 23. That's where we're at today. We're in the midst of this series, Seven Words, Seven Woes. Let me ask you a question first. Have you ever, have you ever made a deceptive statement? Have you ever lied before? I know. By the way, don't be surprised, but today we're going to see on the third woe we're looking at today, Jesus' word to oath swearers, those who made deceptive promises. Uh, Let me just ask you another question. Have you ever made a promise, but while you were making the promise, you had your fingers crossed behind your back? Maybe not actually, just proverbially. You said, hey, I, I didn't really mean it. And have you ever made a promise that you had no intention of fulfilling? Hey, the check is in the mail. I'll be there in five minutes. You'll look great in that dress. Whatever it is. Okay, so we're in Matthew 23. We did look at the first woe several weeks ago in verse 13. Jesus' word to door closers. Now, his word to them was this. Don't shut people off from the gospel. Show them the way to Jesus. Second woe was in verse 15, Jesus' word to sea crossers, because they were zealous for the wrong thing. So his word to those who go out of their way to make converts would be, preach the faithful, true gospel, not a false, twisted one. But today, the third woe, Jesus' word to oath swearers. Now, before we read, we're going to read Matthew 23, 16 through 22. Let me just say, I have been praying this week, as I do every week, that God would give me to say what we need to hear. And my, my every week prayer is, Lord, what do you want for your people at Grace this week? I'm not saying I get it right all the time or that I, 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 um, I don't hinder that process at all, but that is my desire. But all that to say that I know about a month or so ago, I invited all of you to take a journey with me that some of you may have forgotten that we are on. It's a 90, I I said, I want you to take a 90-day journey with me, a journey of discovery, roughly from New Year's Day to Palm Sunday, of taking our lives back from the sticky web of hypocrisy. I know it's not flashy. I know that's not, it's not cool sounding like, you know, 90 days to a a new you, or, you know, uh, 90 days to a better life, or or what what have you. But I want to say something about this idea that it would be easy to take the low road and depress ourselves when we see what we're really like. But God wants us to take the high road and see Jesus. He wants us to have a fresh look at the sovereign Savior, not at our sinful selves. And so I'm not interested in increasing your guilt feelings or my guilt feelings or heaping uh, guilt upon any of us that's not what i'm interested in what i'm interested in is honest self-reflection for growth in christ that's what i'm hoping for and it's for the sake of jesus and the gospel and that we would as individuals as households as a church worship and see and savor the lord jesus christ even more so with that, open your Bibles, and, and please stand with me, if you're, if you're able. Uh, and we're going to read verses 16 through 22 of Matthew chapter 23. And let me just say that these are strong words. 
Matthew 23 is a tough chapter with really strong words from Jesus. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, that is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Lord God, we thank you that you are the one who sits on the throne. Thank you, Lord, that you are the one who dwells among your people. And Lord, we, I pray that you would open our eyes today, Lord, to to the reality of who you are, to gospel truths that would counteract the, the lies of, of the world and the flesh and the devil. Lord, have your way with us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's get right at it in verse 16. If you've been with us in this, in this series, what you know is this word woe that starts the sentence, that starts the verse, is nothing new. It's, it's a continuation of woes that Jesus is pronouncing, the judgment of God upon those who reject Christ. Basically, he is previewing the, the sounds of agony that people who are who are re- that, w- that reject Jesus will make the, the guttural cries of anguish and pain and anger even the future sounds of agony now he usually says woe to you hypocrites but this time he doesn't call them hypocrites so maybe I don't know maybe things are getting better right no it gets worse it stronger words he says you are blind Now, he doesn't call them uh, mask wearers, hypocrites. He calls them blind guides, blind leaders in verse 16. And then he calls them blind fools in verse 17. And then blind men in verse 19. How compassionate that Jesus would expose the truth. How loving that he would show them what they were really like. He calls them blind, 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 triply blind. He's saying to them, you can't see and you lead others astray. You can't see the forest for the trees. You are blind. Now, when you can't see something, it's terrifying. One of my favorite things to do is when we're driving on a country road out in the middle of nowhere, is turn off the head at night, is to turn off the headlights for just one moment while the rest of the family just screams because it's terrifying. 
I mean, if you think about it, what would be like the worst nightmare you could have? For me, it would be driving blind on a mountain road with sheer drop-offs. That dream isn't going to end up good. The problem the scribes and the Pharisees is that they were arrogantly unseen. They weren't innocently unseen. They refused to believe the truth. So what were they doing? What I want us to do today is see what they were doing and how different they were from Jesus. What they were doing and then how they were the opposite of Jesus. And uh, I'll give you two observations today and one exhortation. And the main point will be embedded somewhere. It's not even on the PowerPoint. But the, the main point will be in there. You're going to have to find it. I'll tell you when it's there, okay? I'll tell you when we get to it. So the first one is an observation about what they were doing and how they were so different from Jesus. The first thing is that they were, they were encouraging deception while Jesus is absolute truth. Jesus dealt in absolute truth. Verse 16, they said, if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. No big deal. But if you swear by the gold of the temple, ooh, you're bound by your oath. You have to do it. You are obligated. Now, you see the word swear ten times in this passage. It means to make a promise. To say you're going to do something. So they're making these arbitrary distinctions. So if you swore by the temple or in verse 16 or the altar in verse 18 or, the, or heaven itself in verse 22, your oath wasn't considered binding. You didn't have to do what you said. There's a way to get out of things. But if you swore by the gold in the temple, you were bound, you were obligated. Isn't that interesting that the scribes and the Pharisees said, hey, uh, the temple, you can get away with that one, but the gold... We're going to hold you to that one. Hmm. Because they couldn't put the temple in their pockets. But they could put the gold in their pockets. See, they were doing this for greedy gain. Now, you were bound if you made an oath like that. There's complex rules about binding and non-binding oaths. So if you wanted to get out of it, but still look spiritual, do a non-binding oath. Now, out of obedience to God, they actually... Um, would not swear by the name of God himself. As Exodus 20, verse 7 says, you shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. The third commandment. But they built this elaborate system of, of oaths, of promises. Some were binding, some were not. It was a way of making a promise while your fingers were crossed behind your back. You didn't have to mean it. They mishandled the very truth they claimed to defend. They were blind as bats. So verse 17, Jesus says, you're blind fools. He said, what's greater? The gold or the temple that made the gold sacred? Verse 18, you say, someone swears by the altar, it's nothing. Oh, but if you swear by the gift of the altar, you have to do that. Why? Because they couldn't put the altar in their pockets. They could sure take the gift. Now, what they thought was going on was that they were getting justification to, uh, to lie without penalty. You could lie and get away with that without getting in trouble for it. It's like the get-out-of-jail-free card for Pharisees. You just say this and you're off the hook. But you say that, you are obligated, you must do it. So here's the loophole, basically. Here's, here's how you can skate. Here's how you can skirt your responsibility. Just don't, don't promise according to this way. Just do it the way we tell you and you'll be okay. You won't have to do 
what you say you'll do. So what they were doing is changing the rules to suit themselves. They were qualifying the requirements of God's law to allow latitude in some areas and not in others. So what they were doing is is encouraging lying. Evasive oaths and therefore encouraging lying. They were false promisers. They were sin encouragers. So let's talk about lying for a moment. Like I said, you're not going to be surprised that it's about lying. We all, we don't, we come out of the womb uh, and we don't have to be taught to lie. Not one of us was taught to lie. We just knew how to do it already. It was ingrained in us already because of our sin nature. So let's talk about lying. The Bible says that lying lips are an abomination to God. Abomination, that's like a, a really bad thing. You don't want to be an abomination to God. Uh, 1 John chapter 2, verse 21 says that no lie is of the truth. It's, it's the opposite of truth. What is a lie? A lie is a false statement that you make with deliberate intent to deceive. You want someone to think something is true when it is not. And it's closely related to deceit. Deceit is an act or practice designed to mislead either by false appearance or by a false statement. Or you're saying something that is not true. Now, one doesn't have to think much farther than Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5 where they, they conspired together to lie about how much they had sold some property for and they gave the whole uh, amount to the... Ch- they said they gave the whole amount to the church, but they didn't. And it was so ridiculous. Like, you didn't have to do this. You didn't have to lie about it. You just said, here's what we want to give. But they said, no, this is the, the, the full amount we got for this property and and so they lied and and i think you know what happened to them now proverbs chapter six i want you to go there with me because there's a list of seven things that god hates there there are things that god hates and in 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 proverbs six you see seven of them the list starts like this verse 16 well there's six things that god hates no wait 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 seven seven that are an abomination to him so what are they Look at Proverbs 6, verse 17. Haughty eyes. Proud eyes. A lying tongue. There you have lying. By the way, two of these seven have to do with lying. A lying tongue. And hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that make haste to run to evil. Here's another one about lying. A false witness who breathes out lies and one who sows discord among brothers. Those are the things that are an abomination to God. So lying is an abomination to God. You, you don't want to do that. Exodus chapter 20 verse 16. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Ephesians 4.25 Put away falsehood and speak truth each one of you with your neighbor. 1 Timothy 1 verse 10. Liars are listed amongst the sins that are contrary to sound doctrine. Now, where does lying come from? Just go back to Matthew 15 and you'll see what Jesus said about it in the context of what defiles a person. By the way, in Matthew 15, 14 is where he started this blind guides thing about the Pharisees. He says, let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Verse 15, but Peter says, 
explain the parable to us. And he says, don't you get it? Don't you understand? And then he said, do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? Nice and graphic there. Verse 18, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. So lying defiles us. So you've got truth and lying, the, the polar opposites, right? None of us had to be taught to lie. We have to be taught to tell the truth. You've got blessings and curses. You've got blessings for those who are truthful, curses for those who are lying. Jesus is giving this curse, this woe on the Pharisees because they were enabling lying. If you think about it, boil it down, lying is hating truth. Lying is hating the truth. Blindness is believing lies. The scriptures tell us don't lie and so sin against the truth. When we lie, we lie for selfish gain. Um, and our lies bite us repeatedly. Our lies turn against us. What does a lie do? A lie covers up reality. A lie uh, gives a false impression. Someone doesn't want something to be exposed so they, they lie about it. And there are so many lies, not even just the lies we tell, but there are so many lies in the world in which we live. Everywhere you turn, you see, whether it's a billboard or those little magazine clipper ads you get about with coupons in them. I was counting them up last night with my family because it struck me so much on Friday when I received this. And I'm looking in the, mag, the, the, the thing for the coupons, and we counted up 10 ads that had to do with how you can change your body spend, and here was, and, so that you'll be happy. So here's the equation. You want to look like this, so you spend this much money and go through this much pain, and everyone will like you. You'll have a happy life. You'll be smiling all the time because it's, you know, surgically put on your face. The interesting thing was, besides the food ads, the rest of the ads had to do with how you make your dwelling better so that you will be happy. So that you spend this much money and go through this much work and go through this pain so that you'll have a happy life. And what we know is, and if you've been through any of those type things where you're fixated on how you look or you're fixated on where you live, you realize those things don't make you happy. It's a lie that we are encouraged to buy into, lured into really. It's all the things that are in bondage to decay are are what we get lured into depending more, spending more time on than is necessary and more money than we can afford on them. And then there are the lies we tell ourselves. Let's say you're a Christian and, and you say, I know I'm in Christ, but then you keep saying things that are the opposite of what Jesus says about what is truly uh, real about you in Christ. You say, I'm, I'm no good. I, I'm ugly. I'm, I'm, I'm not gifted. I'm not worthy. And, and you, you tell yourself lies. When, when you think about who you are in Christ, you are, uh, the Bible says you are beloved in Christ. You are forgiven. You are accepted. You are secure in Christ. You are safe in Jesus. 
What's the most famous deception? The garden. Lies from Satan. What's the most famous mishandling of Scripture? Satan's lies. He's the father of lies. So, getting back to, enough about lying. I said we weren't going to get all depressed today. And and a look at ourselves and, and our tendency to lie and deceive leads to despair. But a look at Jesus leads to hope. So let's talk about truth. So the Pharisees were encouraging lying and deception and, and uh, falsehood, but Jesus dealt in absolute truth. He is truth. What is truth? You've heard that, that question before. What is truth? It, it, that, that, that question was, was asked in the presence of Christ. What is truth? Well, truth is what conforms with fact. It conforms with reality. Truth is reality. Truth is how things actually are. Truth is what is consistent with the mind and the will and the glory and the character of God. God is called the God of truth in Scripture. Jesus Christ is said to be, in John chapter 1, full of grace and truth. Jesus himself said, I am the way and the truth and the life. John 14, 6. The Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Truth. John chapter 14 and 15 and 16. Paul calls Scripture the Word of Truth. Jesus prayed to the Father in John chapter 17 and said, Your Word is Truth. So everything about God is true. There's no falsehood. God always tells it like it is. Now truth, the Bible tells us, is worth much more than gold. And we value gold. But it is worth much, as Psalm 19 verse 10 says, it is worth more than much fine gold. Truth. John Calvin said, nothing is deemed more precious by God than truth. Think about it. No one is saved without truth. No one is sanctified without truth. No one is, is strengthened or comforted without truth. And truth is from God. And God is the, the sole source and author of truth. And so because of that, sin is whatever God says it is. And judgment is whatever God says it will be. And salvation is what God says it is. And heaven and hell are what God says they are. And it really doesn't matter what man says. It matters what God says because he is truth. Think about it. One word from God is worth more than a billion words from man. Romans 3, 4 tells us, Let God be found true, though every man a liar. So Jesus is the truth, and he said in John chapter 8, verse 32, you will know the truth, and the truth will what? Set you free. We're in bondage to falsehood. The truth will set you free. He even prayed to the Father. He said, sanctify them in truth. So so God wants us, God wants you to bask in the wonderful glory of truth in Christ. 
God wants you to allow the sweet gospel truth to sink deep into your soul and permeate your being. That's what God wants for us. He doesn't want us wallowing in, 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 in depression because of how bad we are. If you are in Christ, he wants you to, to be seated where, with Christ in the heavenlies. That's what the Bible says about us. So if we allow that sweet gospel truth to permeate our souls, then, then we uh, are changed and transformed by that truth. And then we can fight against the, the urges uh, of the flesh that seem so necessary at times, but are really so temporary. Falsehood abounds. Everywhere you look, you can find lies. Jesus is absolute unmixed truth. Now one more, another observation, a second observation. First of all, the the first one is that that they dealt in deception. Jesus is truth. The second observation is that they worked the system for greedy gain. While Jesus went to the cross for his glory and our eternal gain. Verse 19, Jesus says, you blind men. And I think it, it is so loving and so compassionate for Jesus to tell the truth. And he says to them, look, what, what's greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? They, they were just trashing the altar. The altar was the place that God and man would meet. The altar was the place where they were to come before God. And he says in verse 20, whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And verse 21, whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. Who dwells in it? God himself. And verse 22, and whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God. And who sits on the throne of God? God himself. He's basically saying you can't can't get away from this, this one truth that the heart of the issue is telling the truth. You can't get get away from this. Jesus is cutting through this complex web that they had woven. And he's insisting that people ought to tell the truth. He is insisting. He's saying that all oaths in some way or another relate to God. Any promise we ever make relates to God. All um, are therefore binding. We're bound by that. And thus evasive oaths are being eliminated. They're disallowed. So they're working the system for greedy gain. They're wanting um, to, to keep doing falsehood so they could line their pockets with more gold and more gifts. But what did Jesus do? Jesus, as we know, and I want you to see a, a, again what he has done, he went to the cross for his glory and our eternal gain. Look with me again at, at Philippians chapter 2. I want you to see afresh, hear afresh these words about what Jesus has done, what God has done in Christ. In fact, it gives instruction to us, beginning at verse 1, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. 
Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, why would we be encouraged to be this way? Because in verse 5 it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he, he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Death on a cross. Therefore, it says, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. But at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is Jesus, the truth. This is Jesus who went to the cross for for God's glory and for our eternal good. 1 Peter. See, these words in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. It says this, He himself, Jesus himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseers of your soul, overseer of your souls. This is what Jesus did. He wasn't working the system for his own good. He was doing what he did for our eternal gain. So here's the main point. And by the way, it's really, really simple. Here's the main point. It's really, really simple. Jesus' word to oath swearers. Jesus' word to sin purveyors. To lie. Liars. (laughs) He says, deal in truth. Here's the word. Deal in truth because you're accountable to God. Deal in truth because you're accountable to God. Be careful what you say. Be careful what you promise because, because God hears and sees and acts upon that Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13 says no creature is hidden from God's sight but everything is naked and exposed before the eyes of him with whom we must give account so we're exposed in God's presence our true selves And there was a question that has consumed my thinking this week. And I've thought about it, and it's this. With what am I consumed? With what am I consumed? What is my motive? I've been living with that question for about a month. What is my motive in what I say and what I do? Is it for self and pleasure or Christ and the gospel? 2 Corinthians 5.14 gives the focus where it ought to be it says that that Christ died for our sins it says that we who live should no longer live for ourselves but for him who died and rose again on our behalf that's where the focus must be now we know that Jesus opens blind eyes that Jesus 
gives us a fresh look at ourselves. He tells us the truth. But more importantly, he gives us a fresh look at himself. Don't take the low road. Take the high road of gospel truth and see the all-sufficient Savior as the answer for everything. The end of everything. Get a fresh vision of Jesus. Who he is. Who you are in Christ if you are a Christian. If you're not a Christian, what, what are you like without Christ? Dead in sin. A child of wrath. Destined for hell. Get a clear picture of who Christ is and then who we are in him if you're a believer. And significantly, what difference is it making in your life? What difference does that make in your life? You see, seeing Christ and and then seeing, if you're a Christian, you in Christ, but not resolving to, to live any differently is a lie. It's an exercise without experience. It's a question without an answer. It's a, it's a parked car. It's fiction. The litmus test of gospel transformation is, is our relationship with other believers. And then out into the world. Now, I think this is going to lead us to a beatitude. I told you before, if you've been here with us in this series, I've told you before that these woes upon the Pharisees uh, were, are these curses upon them, but their counterpart is found in the Beatitudes. The counterpart is found in the blessings upon those who follow Christ. The Beatitude, I believe, that lines up with this one is in Matthew 5.5. 5. You might be surprised. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the humble meek who are going to get all the things that the Pharisees tried so hard to get. The Pharisees were arrogant about it, and, they, and, and Jesus is saying, blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek. The meek, by the way, meekness is not weakness. If you go, I don't want to be meek, think with me about what it means. It's strength under control. But it's not just exercising self-control. It's the idea of strength under the rulership of Christ. Strength governed by the Holy Spirit. That's meekness. The meek are truthful. They don't arrogantly bend the rules to suit themselves. They stick to God's word and allow it to chart their course. And so God blesses the humble meek who could be as bold as lions. But they know where their true strength lies. They know where their sufficiency lies. They know where their adequacy lies. It is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now Peter, as bold as he was, I believe he can be described as meek. Strength under the control of the Holy Spirit. Because I believe that seeing who you are in Christ leads to a humble acknowledgement of the truth Not to pride, not to thinking we are right about everything, but we become more genuine, we become more generous when we see who we are in Christ. We become quicker repenters when we see who we are in Christ. So here in in Acts chapter 3, Peter is preaching his first sermon since Pentecost. 
And he's got a group of his Jewish brothers that have gathered together and he gives them a very straightforward charge. Here's what he says to them. Repent, therefore. They've heard the gospel. And he says, repent, therefore, and turn again that your sins may be blotted out. They've heard about a holy God. They've heard about sinful man. They've heard about a sovereign Savior, a perfect Savior, and, and the need to believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved. And so he says, repent, therefore, turn again, that your sins may be blotted out. And then he says that times of refreshing may come to you from God. Don't we all want to be refreshed? I mean, most of us, we're trying just to get along with people on a daily basis. Most of us, we're just trying to survive today and get to tomorrow. So wouldn't a time of refreshing be, oh, I don't know, refreshing? But here's what happens. The world bombards us with dirt clods and fiery missiles from the evil one. But Jesus has conquered all. And so, when we get a fresh look at Jesus, we repent. I like the way John Piper put it. He says, repent means stop banking your hope for happiness on your own achievements and the pleasures of sin and turn to Christ and bank your hope on his promises. Stop following all the recommendations of the world and turn and start following the commandments of Christ. My exhortation to you today is this. Very simple. Cling to Jesus, not your sin. Cling to Jesus, not your sin. Romans chapter 13 verse 14 tells us to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh with regard to its lusts. So we need to cling tenaciously to the sovereign, sovereign Savior Jesus Christ who holds us fast. We don't want to cling to sinister slave-making sin. We need to live as God's free slaves, not sin's captives. We need to worship Jesus. Think about what the gospel does for us. Think about what the gospel does as it exposes ourselves, us to ourselves. It fills us with humility and it fills us with hope. It fills us with meekness and boldness at the same time in a very unique way. You don't have to live religiously anymore and say, oh, I've got to try really hard to obey so God will accept me. Gospel truth is, you are accepted in Christ, therefore you want to obey Him. The gospel humbles you. The gospel encourages you at the very same time. You see that you are justified before God, but you still sin, and you realize that you are, are more sinful than you ever imagined but you are more blessed and accepted and loved by God than you ever dreamed. Cling to Jesus, not your sin. The danger is to go along with the temptation, to go along with sin and compromise and, and go along with lies. I think sin is like a little pet dog you carry around. Its name is compromise. And it's got rabies and it keeps biting you, but you keep petting it and feeding it and taking care of it. You know, we say that Jesus is the great physician. He is the great physician. He is also the great veterinarian that puts down the rabid dog of sin. Sin sometimes is blatant disobedience. Sin sometimes is sly ignorance. 
Sin sometimes is ignoring inconvenient truths. But theology lived is what God wants. Theology lived, believe, truth lived is what Jesus wants. He wants you to see him in all his glory. Being reminded of his identity. Being reminded of your true identity. And that will lead to action. By the way, if you're not a Christian today, if you don't know Jesus Christ, there is hope and freedom in Christ because there is a holy God that dealt with the problem of sinful man sending a perfect Savior who died for sin and if you believe in Him, you will be saved. Cry out to Him. Believe. Trust. You know, the person who lives in every moment accountability to God always aware they're in God's presence feels in truth and by the way Jesus said you only need to give a simple yes or no as a binding oath your word is your bond but as the worship team comes back up let me say this better yet God's word is his bond did you know that God has bound himself by oath God has bound himself by oath Hebrews chapter 7. See, we have, we have faith that he will keep his word. We have the assurance. We have a guarantee that he will keep his word. It says this in Hebrews chapter 7 verse 18. The former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Who's he talking about? Verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Therefore, he is able to save forever, save to the uttermost those who come to him because he keeps his word. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that you keep your word. Thank you, Lord, that you deal in truth. And Lord, thank you for, for life in Christ for those who, who believe. We acknowledge that being a Christian in this world is terribly countercultural, and it has terribly countercultural implications. How do we, Lord, live redemptively with gospel-driven mindsets in a world that portrays the exact opposite as the preferred answer? Lord, we acknowledge we live in a deceptively enticing world. And Lord, we ask that you would free us, that you would consume us with yourself, that we would bask in gospel truths and live for your glory. In Christ's name.